Thanks for tuning in to the EAIE podcast. This is episode 26, and I'm your host, Laura Rumbly, EAIE's Associate Director for Knowledge Development and Research. It's September 2021, and we at the EAIE are eagerly looking forward to the EAIE Community Exchange event, which is happening at the end of this month. That four-day online experience is going to cover a lot of ground, but one of the key themes you'll certainly be hearing a good deal about is that of equity and inclusion. With that in mind, this episode features a conversation with a colleague who's dedicated his professional life precisely to those issues. And what I find so interesting in the case of our guest today is the ways in which he's been involved in this work in both the higher education sector as well as in the domain of local community engagement. John DeLapp has recently taken up a position at Princeton University after 15 years working in Ireland and in Brussels. I caught up with him at the tail end of a training course he was delivering in northern Italy, during which time he found himself caught up in an unexpected quarantine order that was delaying his travel back to the United States. Though the views of the Italian Alps out his window were lovely, his Wi-Fi was very unstable, so we chatted the old-fashioned way, via mobile phone. Just a little explanation as to why his voice sounds a little grainy in our recording. Undaunted by technology, I began by asking John what similarities and differences in approaches to diversity and inclusion work were standing out to him as a recent returnee to the United States after a significant number of years in Europe. It's a very good question. I suppose my own experience with accessibility and inclusion in higher education institutions is coming from more of a community's point of view rather than from a higher education institution point of view. And I think in this conversation, it's important to talk about accessibility and inclusion as a two-way street, if not, a, if not more like a, a very busy roundabout with multiple avenues leading in. Certainly, uh, looking at it from the point of view of the higher education institution is key, but I suppose I got my feet wet more from community's point of view, uh, working in my first position after I finished university in the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life at Vassar College, which is a liberal arts college in upstate New York in the USA, and was one of the first higher education institutions to grant degrees to women. And from my work there, I was working on a daily basis with youth groups, with churches and other houses of worship of other faith traditions, NGOs, food banks, battered women's shelters, and trying to draw lines of connection between ways both big and small, formal and informal, that people could connect into the resources of Vassar College, which was an institution that had been there for you know more than 100 years. And uh, still, though, it might as well have been on the moon because it was very difficult for a lot of people to access who weren't coming at it through the formal approaches that many university students arrive at college through. The, the, the differences that I noticed between my experience there and in working in different capacities and equity, diversity, and inclusion in higher education in Europe for the 15 years is multiple. For one, the language was different then. In 20, that was 2006 when I moved over to working in Ireland in uh, the access office of the Polytechnic University in Dublin. Um, the language of higher education was different. Also, there was a lack of focus on actual languages. So in, in the United States, I suppose one avenue that is perhaps less explored than in Europe is the actual practical application of different languages and the role of offering different resources at the university in languages other than English in Europe. There seems to be a greater level of comfort with that. Um, there's also a, a big difference in the way that mainstream politicians, certainly in Ireland, and as I got my feet in Brussels, certainly across Europe, the way mainstream politicians talk about higher education as an avenue that 
is seen more as a collective responsibility or, or you know, where the, the central government would have a role in both funding and delivering and finding answers to, to access and, and, and thrive in higher education rather than it just being the responsibility of an individual private institution. And the stakeholders are different too. I think in the United States and perhaps Canada, the Canadian context, there's more of a focus on NGOs and community groups and churches playing a role in helping young people and people of all ages in accessing higher education. Whereas perhaps in Europe, that's less of, of, of certainly my experience, or, or perhaps it's only becoming that, that way now where you see NGOs kind of stepping in to fill the gap between young people and people of other ages accessing higher education. Um, there's also different assumptions in what constitutes success, quote unquote. And of course, this concept of success is rather prickly and it, that there's often, in my experience, a lot of snobbery in what success means and in terms of a lot of people across Europe and as well as in the United States, kind of as seeing a four-year classical university degree as the kind of gold standard in higher education, which leaves a lot of other pathways in higher education kind of behind, which makes a lot of assumptions and is certainly not true in a lot of young people's experiences. There are plenty of young people who benefit and find a lot more richness in practical approaches, uh, in learning a trade, in polytechnical institutions, and other kinds of higher education spaces and places. So in, in Europe, I suppose that one difference between Europe and North America, again, is that in Europe, this tracking seems to begin earlier in secondary school, whereas in the U.S., it, most high schools, at least in my experience, most secondary schools wouldn't already be tracking a young person on a kind of practical path or a, a classical university higher education pathway until they're already after 17 or 18 years old. So those would be some differences, certainly in my experience. It's, it's hard to say which is better um, or worse. I, I'd say that there are certain things in both instances that are particularly useful when trying to take a holistic view of what an institution's responsibility is and what a community member's or a community group's responsibility is in trying to bridge the gap to higher education. It's a really rich array of different kinds of factors and considerations in this in very complicated discussion about access and inclusion. And you know, I look forward to trying to pull apart some of those with you as we move through this discussion. Along these same lines, to put this in very simplified terms, I have the impression that in Europe, the accent is more frequently placed on socioeconomic conditions as a variable with respect to access and inclusion and diversity, whereas in the US, the focus might be more overtly on matters of race and ethnicity. And to some extent, of course, this might be two sides of the same coin, given that race and ethnicity and socioeconomic status often seem to align in our societies in different ways. But with those rough distinctions in mind, I wonder what you see as some of the advantages and disadvantages of those different ways of conceptualizing the issue or issues and how you see them influencing action. The reality is, is that people in both Europe and North America and around the world for that matter are living every day with intersecting identities and experiences. And in my experience, established higher education systems are often not built to recognize and support the nuanced and intersecting identities that people arrive on their doorsteps with. It's true that different societies in Europe and North America place emphasis on different things, and these things are informed by history, heritage, taboos, politics, etc. People who are affluent and of color in both contexts experience racism. People experiencing socioeconomic disadvantage face the reality of having to code switch when moving in and out of higher education. And there's a very real social cost which is attached to that. In fact, there's a, an excellent book by Professor Jennifer Morton, who worked at City University of New York City, called Moving Up Without Losing Your Way, which talks about 
the cost, which is in, in my experience and working in both contexts in North America and in Europe, a reality that people face when they come from a socioeconomically disadvantaged background and attempt uh, to access higher education. There's often this, in addition to needing to learn the language of how things in a higher education context work, there's often this um, reality that they have to speak one language with the communities where they come from and a different language at the university. And very often, um, this leads to a kind of gap which many young people find difficult to navigate and which often higher education institutions are, are, are not even resourced to assist a young person or a person of any age with. So the reality is that these intersecting identities are real on both sides of the Atlantic and universities, if they are really committed to inclusion and diversity and, and in particular belonging, they need to resource and identify how people are arriving on their doorstep to study in any capacity, whether it be full-time or part-time, and resource those particular items, which, uh, you know, whether that be staffing or whether that be additional resources in the library, different ways of teaching, different ways of assisting professors to adapt their material to teaching different audiences to make sure that, you know, both race and socioeconomic disadvantage are part of the conversation from day one. And it's it's not an afterthought. Very, very helpful to kind of pull out those distinctions and remind us about that super crucial matter of intersectionality. One of the main arguments usually made against attempts to modify systems to increase diversity or accommodate or celebrate is that these modifications will inevitably drive down standards. That is not my own opinion, but I know it to be um, an, an opinion put forward by some parties. What's your response to that really specific concern or critique? You know, I, I suppose I used to tiptoe around this issue and enter into this conversation with, with a little bit more um, hesitancy. And I, I think after 15 years of working in access and, and inclusion in, in higher education context, I've, I've grown a little bit impatient. Uh, the concept of standards of higher education, first of all, have been defined for hundreds of years by a very narrow group of people in Europe and in North America who have traditionally had easy access to higher education. So it's important to start with that history and to say, you know, the idea of standards and uh, before we can talk about quote unquote driving them down has been defined by a very non-diverse group in both contexts. Secondly, what I would say is that this standard, this kind of industry gold standard of, of what higher education should, should, should and should not constitute is defined by um, institutions which have become habituated to things working in and being delivered in, if you like, smooth packages, which doesn't always draw a distinction between the substantial content that a student or a particular resource has and the packaging that it's delivered in. And to be more specific, there's a difference, in, and in higher education, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a very clear, thick line between empirical knowledge, which is arrived at through the scientific methodology in, in any field, and an individual human body's lived experience, which often is given short shrift in, in higher education spaces. And I think in order, if higher education institutions are really keen and authentic about wanting to become more inclusive of, of a broader cross-section of all of our societies, there needs to be a much greater acceptance that people's lived experiences in their own bodies is as valid as um, information and knowledge, which is arrived at through the empirical scientific methodologies, which are traditionally forming the backbone of, of higher education institutions. So to say that finding appropriate methods to welcoming and incorporating knowledge, which is arrived at through lived experiences and anecdotal experience, to equivalent that with driving down standards is by its very nature detrimental to the process of inclusion. I mean, we'll, we'll just keep going around in circles until leaders of higher education institutions can find ways to acknowledge that both of these 
sources of information are as equal to one another, as equal as the other, and manifest them in terms of how universities resource the nurturing and fostering of those uh, particular sources of information. Really important message there about the role of leadership, and I guess to the um, the very daunting task of dismantling the historical foundations on which a lot of higher education systems, sectors, and, and institutions sit. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the the ability to do that? I think I'm a little bit realist. I think I've had uh, so many experiences with well-meaning, say. Uh, organizations which identify themselves as corporate partners, business partners, donors, even people who work inside of, of higher education institutions, they the rhetoric is that we're trying to create an institution that is accessible to all. But the reality is, is that the nuts and bolts of delivering that rhetoric are very far away from, from what people's reality is. Here's one example. I was working in Dublin with a community group and some colleagues inside of the higher education institution where I was working were complaining about how emails were not being responded to uh, within 24 hours, how the emails that were being the emails that were coming to us were often not spelled correctly or were rather informal. And when we did go down to meet them in person in their offices, um, which were a stone's throw away from the university campus, that things were always disorganized and the phones were ringing off the hook. And it was very difficult for meetings to begin and end on time, as had been agreed. And all of these kinds of standards of, of how we expect quote-unquote, professional activity to unfold is defined by this very narrow group of people who have always traditionally had access to higher education. And when you're working in an organization or with a community group, formal or informal, that is historically under-resourced, it's impossible to expect the same level as defined by the institution of what constitutes professional work uh, to be delivered by another group. And there is this particularly in the UK and Ireland, and I think often in, in other Western European countries, there's this expectation that the not-for-profit sector, the NGO sector, is operating in the same way as the, you know, the same level of formality, the same level of professionalism as, say, public bodies or, or, or multinational corporations. And that is, that is a farce. It's absurd, particularly when you're working with young people, young people who are from traditionally uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds or disabled backgrounds, to expect these organizations to deliver the same level of smooth, uh, you know, um, savvy professional quote-unquote uh, style of working when you, there's so much richness there but it requires the the powers that be in departments of education and higher education institutions to put their ear to the ground and to listen carefully to what the particular challenges are to kind of divine and to work as real true partners with folk to see where can we learn from this beautiful brokenness if i might say and then likewise how how communities and individuals can also learn from what the university is doing but right now the power clearly lies with the university and the expectation is that community groups and individuals who are excluded historically from higher education bend to their will and rise up, if you like, to their level of professional working. And that is just an elemental barrier in terms of arriving at any kind of deeper, genuine inclusion beyond rhetoric. That's a really helpful example and I think set of issues to put on the table for, help, for helping us to understand better this bigger picture that you're talking about. Switching gears just a little bit, um, as you know, equity, diversity, and inclusion and access will be one of the main themes of discussion at our online community exchange event, which the EAE is running from September 28th to October 1st. And in preparation for that, the EAE has published a series of essays on our blog, drawing attention to some of these key themes. 
the essay that we published earlier this summer on inclusive mobility specifically has a lot to say about supporting students with disabilities who wish to study abroad. So I was just wondering, based on your experience, you know, what's your take on the way that universities in Europe and in the US are responding to students who identify as disabled and adequately supporting them? What are some of the important developments that we might be looking out for in this particular area? I think universities and all and other higher education institutions, for that matter, have made really much progress in identifying a broad range of concerns that both staff and students with physical disabilities might encounter in fully participating in higher education. Of course, much, much remains to be done, but the resources available to assist higher education institutions in identifying best practices regarding physical disability accommodations have increased significantly, both in, in Europe and, and in, in North America. Inclusion, though, is more than simply just access. You know, access, if you like, is the, you know, there's that old saying, access is being invited to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance. The, the next step for universities is to acknowledge that fostering inclusion also involves the responsibility of the higher education institution and also the Department of Education in, in the European context to examine how students and staff with disabilities can feel like they can thrive in that space. Additionally, much more work is needed to be done on a practical level to ensure that people who identify as neurodiverse, um, so this is moving beyond physical disability, can participate in and add value to higher education. I think the experience of people who identify as neurodiverse is often that it's very challenging for them to find ways that they can feel they can add value and be acknowledged that they are adding value in what is often very narrowly defined university faculties or, you know, particular ways of assessment or uh, determining whether someone is able to receive or even you know, be qualified to teach on a pathway leading towards a university degree. And like I said earlier, very often classical approaches to higher education, quote unquote, excellence depends on the amassing of empirical knowledge in this very, you know, scientifically defined methodology. And that ignores the lived experience of a neurodiverse person or indeed a physically disabled person in one's own body. So I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying that it's something that you can wave a magic wand and arrive at tomorrow. This is the work of decades in seeking out the particular experiences, not one person's experience, but the experience of many, many, many people for many years in Europe and North America who have particular, who have faced particular challenges in not only being in the room, but really participating in a deep sense in, in higher education. And I think it's a dialogue that uh, leaders and administrators and teachers at higher education institutions have a responsibility themselves to take on. And in order to do this in any way that is meaningful, a higher education institution or a department of education in the European context needs to resource, i.e., you know, more staff, more bodies to lead these important dialogues and then draft them into what I hope would become strategic plans, which would be eventually embedded so that the answers, the, the, the pathways towards making higher education more accessible for people with physical and intellectual disabilities uh, is not only arrived at with a kind of ad hoc solution, that it becomes really embedded into the fabric of how universities deliver their particular goals. So you're already speaking a little bit to a follow-up question that I had, which is the kind of the question about the framework conditions that we need. So our inclusive mobility essay contributors also reminded us, and I'm quoting here, that only a few European countries have implemented strategies to strengthen the social dimension in mobility programs. I'm curious about your sense of how single universities on the one hand and potentially the European Commission through its Erasmus Plus program on the other hand can help fill this void when there might not be 
some of those actions at the national level? And you know, in that mix, why, why might national policies be so crucial? I guess I can best respond to this question by telling a story or anecdotally, anecdotically, I can't pronounce that word at least. Um, first of all, well, also we need more people in universities who can't pronounce words. I think that's also very important. <laughs> um, indeed. But um, yes. Yeah, so when I, when I first started working for Dublin Institute of Technology, as it was called at that time in 2007, I met a man who was a personal hero of mine, a great friend to inclusion in higher education in Europe. And his name is Dr. Tommy Cook. And he was the head of the, what was then called the community links program, which was a dedicated office inside of the Dublin Institute of Technology, which was dedicated towards finding pathways to include um, young people from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds in inner city Dublin in, in the different offerings of Dublin Institute of Technology, which, which has now become the uh, Technological University of Dublin. And to be sure, the work that was being done by a very small team of about four staff members, you know, in, in the inner city Dublin, working locally with young people and also adult learners who lived kind of within a particular, you know, so many kilometers radius in, you know, the north inner city of Dublin and connecting them to education opportunities was brilliant. But it was limited in that, you know, we, we were really working only in our, in our local area. And it was only when the Irish government developed their national plan for equity of access to higher education, which came about through a long series of consultations, not only with offices like ours, which were attached to universities, but also community groups and youth organizations, parents groups, employers, and also secondary schools, which are designated by the Department of Education in Ireland as socioeconomically disadvantaged. It was only after a long series of consultations with all of these stakeholders that the the national government in Dublin arrived at much more sophisticated criteria for identifying what constitutes socioeconomically disadvantaged, this phrase, and then ring-fenced places across all higher education institutions in the state, in Ireland, for young people coming from these backgrounds. And that was eventually, after a period of years, unified into a national scheme, which is called the HERE scheme, the Higher Education Access Route. So when the national government finally settled on this policy and resourced it in a, in a, with parity of esteem across the, the, the state, did we really begin to see the needle moving, the, the, the numbers, the demographics of who was accessing higher education across the state, you know, actually making a dent you know, and, and, and moving us more towards what the demographics of the country look like. So, so while certainly individual single universities can absolutely make a difference in their local area. It was only when the, the national government got on board and turned that into legislation that we began to see the needle moving and, and change actually happening demographically. The European level of all of this is so much more clear than it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago, in that there are now clear guidelines and resources and so many tools, both from the European Commission, but also, I must say, from the Council of Europe, which is brilliant, to assist higher education institutions and departments of education in arriving at some kind of agreed national strategy. It doesn't all need to look like the one that, you know, that has been successful in Ireland. But, you know, certainly there are models now, both from Ireland and Austria and from other European countries, which other, you know, European nations on a national level can turn to to say, hey, this was successful. Maybe we can find bits of this that can, you know, be applicable in our country. And I would say that while, you know, the efforts of single universities are, are crucial, and indeed, say, I would urge leaders of single universities to, you know, step out of what the kind of standard status quo is in your country if you don't see the national government moving in a particular direction. Certainly, the role for, of national uh, ministries of education is absolutely crucial in, in arriving at any kind of systemic change in this field. 
That really provides an excellent indication or sense of how these different actors fit together and how they can all play such a powerful and important role. My last question for you, John, is kind of an open-ended big one. The EAE's 2021 Community Exchange theme is Bolder, Braver, Go. What are one or two ways you feel that the equity, inclusion, access, and diversity movement in international education specifically needs to move more boldly or bravely? I would say it is a collective symptom of higher education in both North America and Europe that there is this expectation of excellence, of delivering excellence, or trying to deliver things in as perfect a way as possible, which is very often the case when we trade in theory. The reality is, is that people's lived experiences are imperfect and that I think I would urge higher education institutions to be unafraid, to make mistakes, to build new pathways, to not wait for some kind of national or local regional approval to actually experiment with new projects, to fund pilot projects and to run with them and to learn from the mistakes that are made. We need institutions to boldly take the lead and to particularly to begin collecting data, even if it's flawed data, even if there are challenges with local regulations in terms of the collection of data. I mean, certainly when I started working at the Dublin Institute of Technology in Dublin, there was no national guidelines, no, no guidelines of any kind about how we should collect data regarding the young people who, through our local kind of social work in the community, and ended up in, in courses. But we knew in the back of our minds that we needed to have some kind of data because you can't just go to a policymaker and say, hey, we're doing this great work with local young people in inner city Dublin, please fund us. We knew we needed to have something to point at. And so we began in a very, I would add, imperfect way at that time of collecting data to track the progress of both staff and students who were coming in into the university at that time. Um, and so I would urge universities to boldly step in that direction. Don't wait for some kind of approval. Forge informal networks with local NGOs, with secondary schools, with parents' organizations. Do what you can to start the dialogue. Connect people to leadership in the university if you have any kind of sympathetic ear in any rung of leadership at your university. And try and be a conduit to exchange ideas, strategies, and approaches. Um, which hopefully will end up in a number of years, if not decades, leading to things like unified data collection or, you know, more standardized processes and procedures that are adopted by the university. I think, I think your your words about being bolder and braver and going there need to be taken by people need to take up the mantle without waiting for some kind of blessed assurance from those the great and the good. John, I have so enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much for connecting with us. Oh, my pleasure, Laura. John DeLapp, who currently works as a project analyst in the office of the Vice Provost for Institutional Equity and Diversity at Princeton University. We referred in our conversation with John to a community exchange conversation starter essay that we published on the EAE blog earlier this summer. A link to that essay can be found with the session notes for this episode, along with some additional resources related to these wide and urgent and interconnected issues of access, equity, diversity, and inclusion. As I mentioned in the introduction to this episode, the 2021 EAE Community Exchange will also feature sessions and conversations connected to this topic and so much more. Full information about that event and how you can take part is available on our website. That's www.eae.org. I hope you'll tune in for the newest EAE podcast episode, which airs just next week. You can subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform, and we thank you kindly for your likes and shares on social media. Thanks in advance for joining us again soon. Until that time, all good wishes from the EAE.